0: Internets, make sure you tell a friend to tell a friend. The Premium Petro Live Tour is going on, and the next stop is November 15th in Philadelphia, 6 to 9 p.m. Man, it's going to be a movie. Special guests, sounds, food, vibes. Man, who who knows who's going to stop by? It's at the WeWork Northern Liberties, and it's sponsored by my good friends Jason Mark, the best shoe cleaner in the game, Gorillos Pickles, the best pickles in the game, and Suplex Philadelphia. The best sneaker shop in Philadelphia. Okay, I want you to be there. And if you're not from there, tell a friend. Tell a friend who's from Philadelphia or even close by. Say, listen, November fifteenth, WeWork presents the Premium Show Live Tour in Philadelphia, six to nine p.m. More info will be either on Twitter, there'll be an RSVP link, or my Instagram bio. Pay attention to that. But now, heading to this episode. This was on the road. This is when I was in Atlanta during a3c festival. As soon as I got off the plane went right to the legendary Kendall Minter's office. To me, one of the most powerful entertainment lawyers in the game. Okay? I want to give a big shout-out to my man newbie a.k.a. Buttery OG, for providing the portable sound for us to do this on the road. This is the second time I ever did this on the road. The first time was the legendary Travis Grillo, Grillo Pickle episode, which is a fan favorite. I also want to give a shout-out to my father-in-law to be the great Nat Robinson from First Priority Music. I mean, he, he helped set this up, and Kendall's a good friend of him. And we just really went to that office and, and chopped it up, man. I'm so excited for you to hear this. My man Isaiah put this together, Tiggerachi. Man, it was a great time in Atlanta, man. I also had the live show over there. Uh, man, I, let, me, let me stop talking, and let's get to this legendary Kendall Minter episode. Let me tell you something. If you're a lawyer, and you want to learn about more about the business, or if you're a lawyer to be, or if you have any inkling in your mind, like, right, yo, I would love to work in, as an entertainment lawyer. If you listen to this episode, I promise you, you'll have so many jewels that it will further your life and your career. And thank me later. And thank Kendall Minter. I don't know if he's on social media, but let's get to the episode. Internet, I present to you the Kendall Minter episode. Cheer.
1: Come on, everybody get set, let's
0: go It's the next episode It's the Premium Pete Show News, interviews, all of the info Listen up, it's the Premium Pete Show If you want to scoop in the low, down low Listen to the show, cause Duke said so Fuck what you heard, better act like you know It's the Premium Pete Show Internet, welcome back to another episode of the Premium Pete Show I'm honored to be sitting here with the legendary Kendall Minter Okay Now, Kendall, okay, right off the bat, when was the first thought that you wanted to do anything in this world growing up? Like, I'm sure when you were young, you didn't want to be just a lawyer off the bat. What did
1: you want to be as a kid? Same thing most folks. I want to be a fireman. Mm, mm. Hop on the truck, save people. You know, you see it racing down the street, so it looked like an exciting job. Not thinking about all of the peril that it involved. So when I kind of learned about that, I said, I'm not doing this. (laughs) (laughs) could be something that's cleaner, easier, and that, that can affect more people. So I just went to school, and, you know, as I kind of got into um, undergrad, got on the pre-law path, studied government and poli-sci as a major, mm. did a lot of entertainment stuff on the side to make some dough, and then uh, went to law school.
0: Well, let's take it back for a second. You grew up in Brooklyn? No. You grew up I'm in a, I'm a
1: native of uh, St. Albans, Queens. Okay, Queens. Grew up in Queens. The land of uh, Count Basie and Lionel Hampton and... Muhammad Ali Damn. and James Brown. You ever
0: meet and, Muhammad Ali?
1: Yeah, I did. Actually, in the first time I met him uh, was actually on Linden Boulevard in Saint no, Albans Really? Was, how that happened? He was Cassius Clay then. Okay, okay. So that dates me. Mm, mm. Yeah, but yeah, that was the first opportunity. I rode up there on my bike with a whole bunch of motherhood rats. Mm-hmm. Met Cassius Clay coming out <laughs> of a <my> house. What <laughs> did
0: he say anything to, you or just yeah, he said, hey
1: kids, how y'all doing? Yeah, be and good, y'all. Yeah. He was real gracious. Okay, and he you know he lived right down the street from Count Basie. Mm. um but that was the first encounter yeah
0: Yeah. you know um when you think about someone becoming successful later on in life you know how many friends of yours that you grew up with have become successful did they join you or
1: a lot of them just fell off to be honest most of the cats i grew up with probably half of them are dead or in jail Mm. and that's why you know um when I came up, when I was in high school, I decided not to go to, to school in my neighborhood. Mm. So if I would stayed in Jamaica and, and uh, St. Albans area, I would have gone to Jack, Andrew Jackson High School. Mm. But I saw where my boys were going. I uh, saw, so you, know, you know, we were running the streets. We were stupid. Sure, sure. And some of them, you know, got hooked on drugs. A Couple got killed. Some like I got to get out of the neighborhood. You so. said
0: that to yourself. Yeah, not your yeah, parents. I said
1: no. I said that to myself. I'm like. If I'm going to make it, I got to not go to high school because I'll be hanging out with my boys Mm. because I knew the kind of stuff we were doing, which was just stupid. Not stupid criminal, just stupid, stupid.
0: Sure, sure. Now, Um, you grew up with mom and dad? Yeah. What did mom do?
1: So, I mean, they were all, originally, they're all from New York. Mm -hmm. Um, So, I was born in Corona, Queens Mm -hmm. and Jamaica Hospital and then moved to St. Albans when I was five years old and stayed there essentially until I went off to college. Mm. And mom, um, and mom did, what was her profession? She was a teacher. Okay. So she was initially a teacher, and then after that, she was a, a professor at LaGuardia Community College mm. in New York teaching psychology, and she was an administrator. My dad was a uh, engineer, mm. um, aerospace engineer, so okay, he wow. worked for uh, Fairchild Industries nice. on Long Island, and he did that for many, many years until he uh, moved to Connecticut and Worked for Sikorsky. Mm. And at Sikorsky, he ran a Black Hawk program for, for the Army. Mm.
0: Did you have a good relationship with Pops?
1: Yep. Still do. Oh, nice. nice. Mom's gone, but Pops is still around, living with my brother, my younger brother, in uh, Northern Virginia. And uh, he's 87th, wow. I could. Knock, God knock bless. On wood. Yeah, I got livable genes.
0: You know, when you were growing up, would you say that you were a middle-class family? Or, you know, like, did you have... you know, Yeah,
1: we, I mean, we were definitely middle-class. We weren't struggling. Okay. I can't go back and say... Yeah, it was hard times. You didn't know where the next meal was coming from. Sure. And got evicted. We didn't really have any of that. But at the same time, we weren't blinging. Sure, sure. So I had to pay for my own first car, which I spent $75 on. Yeah,
2: wait, seventy? Would you buy yeah, for $75? it was a Fiat, off? man. A oh, four-door Fiat, God Fiat God damn, that that's... was falling apart.
1: How would you fit in that? It was four of us. I mean, four-door, and I would take all of my crew, and we would roll up to school. <laughs> I went to school at Flushing High School, okay. which is how I got out of the neighborhood. And I got out of the neighborhood on a zoning variance by saying I wanted to study Russian. That was the only way I could get out of the neighborhood. And they taught Russian at Flushing High School. How, how did you hear about that? I just did some research. Mm. I was looking at, it, you know, what do you need to do to go to a high school outside your neighborhood? Mm. There had to be special circumstances and get what they call a variance. So my variance was, yeah, I want to study Russian. I didn't study a lick of Russian. Mm-hmm. But mm. I said I wanted to study Russian, mm. so I got admitted into Flushing High School. So I commuted every day, first on the train, and then, you know, after a few years, by the time I got to my senior year, Bought me a seventy-five dollar Fiat. Mm, mm. Drove to school every day like some. Fuck! Hot I shit. couldn't
0: even think about uh, uh, seventy-five dollars for a car that's yeah, actually well, working. That you know? was back
1: in a mm, mm, couple of years. Yeah, ago. Yeah, I know you don't. You, you, yeah, a couple of years ago. You,
0: <laughs> <laughs> you know, I asked you about pops because uh, you know, obviously you say middle-class family. Yeah. But uh, and we'll go over your career, but being you know an entertainment lawyer yeah. or being a, a bunch of other things, professor, and we'll get into that. But you obviously were probably. M- more successful than your father monetary wise, you know, mm-hmm. um, did you ever get a chance to buy him something that really stuck out or, or, or do something for him with your
1: success? Nothing in the sense of, of financial gifts, just, you know, thank yous by way of Christmas stuff and holidays and birthday gifts and, you know, picking up a tab on dinner when we would go out. And even now, you know, since he's been retired for many years, just, You know, he lives in Virginia, bringing Mm -hmm. him down to hang out with us in Stone Mountain for a couple of weeks, Mm -hmm. and just making sure everything running smoothly. Drink some wine. Yeah. Smoke some cigars. He loves wine. I got to slow him down, because he he drinks wine like people drink water. (laughs) It's like, (laughs) all right. Hey, listen.
0: They say wine helps you when you get older. You believe in that?
1: I'm drinking it every day just to make sure I'll be fine when I get older.
0: (laughs) You know, uh, when you were young, right? Mm Mm-hmm in his teenage years did you have like good credit did you were you aware of that like, i know you... shit about credit yeah. you need Who credit does? when
1: we were young i mean it was cash and carry mm. didn't even have a credit card until i went to college mm. so now nah, it was all straight cash and i worked so you know i worked from the time i was in junior high school so i would get on a train go down to uh west 8th street in Greenwich village yep. work part-time after school where were out. you working worked at a place called the American Youth Hostels, okay. and it's an organization, it's a, it's a global organization, the International Youth Hostel Federation. Basically, it's an organization that is uh, about educating folks through travel, mm. and you learn through traveling. So, you know, we would backpack or cycle all around the U.S., all around the world, or over to Europe, wherever it might be. So they had an organization, the headquarters for uh, New York was down in the village. Mm. And, um, you know, so I kind of joined the organization, got involved in that, and Worked at the store and headquarters, and Monday through Friday, I'd be on the train, hanging out in the village.
0: You know, you know. One thing I find funny is that, like, when people are working when they're young, you know, it's like you really don't know what's next, but you're working. You know, sometimes you could have the inkling that, like, hey, man, I may be stuck here for a long time. Mm-hmm. Some people, you know, think bigger than that and and make it happen. You know, did you always see a bigger vision of what you wanted to do?
1: Yeah, I mean, I just looked at that really as a chance to. One go on some trips for free because mm-hmm. as an employee, good I didn't thinking. have to pay for the trips. Sure, it's so, like your sky you know, miles back then. Yes, yeah, you say sky miles was like bike miles. Sure, so we go you know somewhere by bus, pull out our bikes, bike around you know Penn Dutch country or into Vermont or somewhere for the weekend, go ski and whatever it might be. But it was all about outdoor travel on your own engine and steam. Um, so I did that so I could make some money, do some free travel, and and just have a bunch of good times with some good friends. Mm. And that's what I did um all throughout junior high school and early into the high school years until it was time to get serious about going to college Mm
0: -hmm. and you went to cornell right cornell yeah so i decided
1: how did that happen did you get uh yeah again that was from one of my boys you know one of my boys um was uh chuck um and chuck was already a by the time i was a senior in high school he was a freshman or sophomore at cornell So, you know, when they have the open house, you kind of go up in the spring and size the joint out, figure out if you want to do it. I went there. I went to Brown and I went to Dartmouth. When I got to Dartmouth, there were like maybe five black people in the town. Mm. And I'm like, I don't think this is going to fit. Plus, they weren't. And they had just admitted women maybe two years earlier. So I was going to be this going to be like a dry run. I don't want to go to. Hanover, New Hampshire, so <laughs> Dartmouth was out. Sure, sure. Then I went and spent a weekend in Providence, Rhode Island, at Brown University, and it was uh, kind of like the homecoming weekend, and got involved with the Black Student Union up there, and saw Isaac Hayes do a show, which was really off the chain, and it was all right, but it, just, it didn't knock me out. Mm. It would have been acceptable, but it was like not a first choice. Then I went to Cornell and started hanging out with my boy and his boys, and we had like a rip-roaring weekend that I can't talk about to put in print. Because, you know, we were doing some stuff that might be illegal, depending on what state you live in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, I said, this is the joint. So, Mm -hmm. I mean, it was a beautiful campus. It was a great curriculum. The vibe was real good. So I decided Cornell was the spot. Plus, they had a real good recruitment program. Mm -hmm. They had some real top-notch folks that were getting into the mainstream of getting African-American Mm african-american high school students Mm -hmm. to apply to cornell so our class actually my class was the class of 74 was Mm -hmm. the largest class of african-american students ever in the history of cornell university Mm. and we taught to join up Mm. they still are like damn we let them in here but we taught to join up but we had a good time you ever go back to have like alumni yeah i go back about every two or three years for the alumni weekend weekend and stay in the dorm over there well, yeah, 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 some of my friends stay in the dorm. I like to stay in uh, a nice inn up yeah, the road yeah, yeah. with the yeah. views and everything. Who knows?
0: Probably, who knows? What that, those dorms must be you know, a lot of throw up. Yeah, I mean, well, you maybe know, there's some blowing in
1: there. It's still like bunk beds and shit like that. So <laughs> you That's know, crazy to live like that later on in life. You, you know? look back on it, like it worked at the time, but sleep in the bunk bed now for the weekend for what?
0: Now, I've, I've, I've had a couple of lawyers um, on shows um,
1: that I've done. Um, how hard is the bar exam? Hmm. That's a good question because, you know, everybody has a different level of aptitude when it comes to taking written exams. It's that whole cognitive process. Some people left brain, some people right brain, some people no brain. And it's just a matter of how you yourself tackle exams. So for me, thank God and knock on wood, I passed it on the first go round. Um... But, you know, I, I never really had a problem taking tests, but I do have friends and colleagues who have sat once, twice, sometimes three times just to get past the exam, and it varies from state to state. Some states are a little bit easier than others, but- And where'd New you York, take yours in New I York? I took mine in New York, yeah. Mm-hmm. So New York and California pretty- Probably the hardest, right? Yeah, they have reputations for being kind of ball busters on the exams, but I was fortunate I took it and then uh how, how do you through. know
0: at that time how did you know that you passed like right there and then or you had you, to wait
1: no no you got to wait and then you like in december when because we took it in june okay or july then you got to sweat for months sure sure and then somebody says it's printed so mm. you get a copy of the new york times that day because it has all of the folks who took the exam and passed and i'm like Phew. Let's go have a beer. Now, okay, that's, I was just going <laughs> to ask you because,
0: okay, obviously you have gained a lot of success and mm-hmm. have experienced success over the years. Do you take time to celebrate those successes, and how? You know, obviously you said a beer for the uh, yeah for the um, bar exam, but like you closed though, and we'll get into them. Like your client list is crazy. You closed a lot yeah, of deals. Uh-huh. I mean, you know, there's a lot of people to be honest with you that doesn't that don't know how to celebrate success. Yeah. They want to wait until they get
1: to a point and then they die. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, I mean, for me, I guess the answer is, yeah, after certain specific things, I like to celebrate. But for me, I like to celebrate every weekend if I can. (laughs) You know, so my philosophy is you work hard, you play hard. Mm. And if you don't reward yourself and take breaks along the way, you're ultimately going to break down. You're not going to be any good to anybody. So I've just made it a way of life just to enjoy it as mm. i take the ride not wait for you know some specific bump on the road so you can kind of take a weekend off so sure we take off whenever we can and my wife and i love to travel we love to eat food all, mm. all around the world drink We wine. love to drink wine we're winos man we're we're wine aficionados yeah, in, like the hood, in the hood we're classy winos <laughs> you know so we love italian wines we love uh napa wines sure. and as long as it's expensive and good and full body and flavorful sure. We'll red all red it. all red? Uh no, we drink some white, but the preference is red. The yeah, preference yeah, sure. is Italian yeah. reds, yeah, big yeah. bull full bo- full body reds, like Amaronis and mm. Brunellos and Barolos and stuff like that. But there's a bunch of good Nappas. Mm. Napa cabs. I mean mm. we just came back from Napa a few weeks ago. Hey, listen, that's a beautiful thing. That is your is that a like a mini grandfather? So, block? so this is that's another story. The clock that's ringing now is called a Banneker clock. Mm-hmm. And we all know Benjamin Banneker was the African American who invented the timepiece. Yes. So this is a brother named Derek Holmes, who's based out of Denver, who owns the company, owns the trademark. And that's their grandfather clock. I have one at home, too. But they make some beautiful high end diamond beveled and wood faced watches. Mm. So they're like the joint. Snoop, you know, we got hooked up with Snoop, so he's wearing one, and a whole bunch of other folks in the business. But Veronica watches. Check them Mm, out.
0: mm. I like that, and and you know, I think uh, you know it's important. I was telling some growing up in Brooklyn, you know, um, especially like you'll see like places like Ocean Parkway, Mm -hmm. uh, Prospect Park. You'll see the big Jewish community, yeah, big Hasidic uh, uh, community, huge. Those people stick together like no other. Yep. It's not, and you look at something like Chinatown. Yeah. If people stick together like That's no other. Right. If you go to Chinatown, in New York City, you'll see a TD Bank with Chinese letters underneath, mm-hmm. McDonald's with Chinese right. letters underneath. Yep. Same thing in, in, in Jewish areas. Yeah. You'll see they have kosher pizza. That's right. You know, Koreatown um, in LA. Exactly. Yeah. And that should be done more like you spend, you look at it like in a black community, mm-hmm. you talk about supporting black business. Yeah. You know, yeah. um, how important is that? Because I see, like, you've been doing. I,
1: I was in the bathroom. I see, like, a, a an art piece. Is that yeah. from somebody? Uh? Yeah, from a, from a, one of, our Tony, from one of my clients, who's a brother who's an artist, and got some other pieces at home from other artists. And you know, it is about supporting your own community. Because mm. if you don't support your own community, you can't complain when other people don't. Sure. And in the African American community, it's hard to have that what we call a centralized. Let's all live in the same hood kind of mentality that. Some of the other communities do because, you know, when you look at the Hasidic community, a lot of them have come over from Israel. Mm. Um, they're the real strong Hasidics. Um, the the Indian community, they immigrated from India and they're kind of like they bring family members and you'll have two or three generations of folks living together in the same property. Um, and a lot of other ethnic communities as well. The Italian community, you know, little, Italy downtown. Sure, sure, sure. Thank so, you. For us, you know, we've been relegated to what they call the ghettos years and years and years ago. So you had, you know, in most of the major cities, some kind of ghetto where the African-American community was housed. But that wasn't by choice. That's because of segregation and and redlining. And we couldn't even here in Atlanta, you know, historically. How long are you out here in Atlanta? I've been here for 22 years. But like 40 years ago, I couldn't have lived in Stone Mountain. Mm. You know, it was like 99% white. The Ku Klux Klan was still marching on the mountain two blocks away from here. So the Andy Youngs and the Maynard Jacksons and the, you know, all of the pioneers of the Atlanta Black Civil Rights Movement, they lived on the southwest side of town because that's where they could buy property. There was decent property that they could live at and not be harassed. Mm. Even though you gained success
0: over the years, do you recall times like that you experienced some racial Issues yeah, in, in, I mean, in
1: being a lawyer. I've never been like beat up by cops or chased down the street unless it was something stupid that I had done, but um or even yeah. a deal with somebody that
0: had a, another lawyer that may have like profiled you or or
1: I know what happens, you know, and it's rare because of the sophistication of other professionals most of the time. I mean everybody's not as outspoken and left left brain as our president is, but <laughs> you know, there will be folks that will subtly have comments that, you know, are rationally divisive, divisive and come from a place of ill. Um, and they won't say it to you yourself, but other friends sure. who may be Caucasian who are friends of yours will say, like, that guy's out for you. He doesn't dig you. And, you know, even when I when I left um, the company I was working for in Washington, D.C., Called Fairchild Industries. I was in house counsel doing their radio work and this was back in nineteen seventy eight or so. And I interviewed with a lot of probably about a half a dozen different high level white entertainment attorneys. I mean the tops, the Paul Marshalls and folks like that. And I went around and you know, they were all like, Hey kid, you know, you got great credentials and we'll kinda get back to you. You know, we have a lot of African American clients and it would be good for the firm. Did I get one offer? Not. Mm. So the offer I got, again, came out of relationships. I got an offer from a guy named Arnold Burns, who was a Cornell grad. Um, And that connection was because of Cornell. Mm. Because I saw it on my resume when he gave it over to the hiring party. He says, one of my alumni. Interview him. So I interviewed, and I got an offer, and I joined a firm on Park Avenue called Burns, Jackson, Miller, Summit, and Jacoby. So I was on Park Avenue, Fifty Seventh Street for a couple of years there, learning everything I could, copying stuff all night long to being of, a sponge. Hey, being a sponge. I so I did entertainment, I did litigation, I did corporate work, anything that I could do to create the knowledge base. Then I'd have my clients kind of come in after six and seven o'clock at night, jeans and guitars, into mm, a corporate mm. firm because you know bringing them in the door during the day was not going to cut Sure. It.
0: Now, were you making money at that time?
1: Were you? Yeah. I mean, I so was making huge dollars. I think I was making like 50 grand a year. <laughs> hey, listen. <laughs> that was big money. I mean, my first <laughs> job was like $25,000 a year as a corporate attorney with a, a Fortune 1000 company. And that was as a lawyer in the in the general counsel's office in Washington, D.C. So, you know, it's all relative to the time period because that was like over 35 years sure, ago. Sure. But still... Yeah, it was good money. I mean, you know, had a, a nice um, townhouse, not a townhouse, but a brownstone in, in Brooklyn mm-hmm. and, you know, drove a Benz into into the city, that kind of stuff. So it wasn't hurting, but wasn't blinging. I mean, yeah. that kind of money right now, a client will make on one deal. This is their publishing advance. Who was your first notable client and how did you get them? Oh, that's really easy. Roy Ayers, who's still a client of mm-hmm. mine. Mm-hmm. Roy is going on maybe 76 now. Wow. Guy still works every single weekend. Right now he's in South Africa. Wow. Last week I think he was in Russia the week before that. How, he's how did that happen? How did you? Well, he had an attorney um, who passed away a number of years ago, and he just wasn't satisfied with him. Mm. So this was in 1980 when I first went out and set up my my own practice, uh, sharing space with another longtime friend of mine named Louise West. Mm a uh, great entertainment attorney who was like the the mother of Reggie Ose, who you know really yeah she was the one who mentored them and all the cats that came out of howard law school and a whole bunch of others oh, they all call her mama louise yeah yeah so she was like you know get away from that large corporate firm and come on and hang out with us on the other side of 57th street so i joined her and rented space in a firm that was kind of owned and operated by some historical figures, Basil Patterson, mm. David Dinkins. Mm. Um, and they put me into that political business circle in New York, and they became my mentors. Um, and David Dinkins, who was, you know, one-time mayor of New York, still alive, still a good friend. I just saw him at an honors award for Beasley maybe about two months ago. But that was what we were doing in New York at the time. And um, started to practice and just kind of built it from there.
0: Let me tell you something. We're going to get into uh, a bunch of your journey as we already have. But uh, your client list is insane. I mean, obviously, we're talking about, you know, this is taking years and years mm-hmm. to build. This is not something. One thing that I already get and I know the audience will get is that you put in the work. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. you look at it from a young kid. You put in the work. You didn't you know you, you took an extra bus. You took an extra time. That's the thing, too. You put in the work and get results. You
1: gotta hustle. You mm-hmm. know, it's not gonna be. I gotta go to over, over this
0: client list. I gotta go over this, and you uh-huh. stop me if you have some interesting story. Sure. R and B. You represented Donnell Jones. Yeah, still do. Jagged Edge. Mm-hmm. Teddy Riley. Yep, still do. Uh, Freddie Jackson. Yep. Cameo man.
1: Yeah, Larry oh, Black and man. And Candy, Acates, Candy man. is one of my favorite. Those dudes are still working. Really? Yeah. Yeah, Atlanta folks. Mm-hmm. Yeah, i mean, and I got linked up with that. Um, by their then manager who was uh, actually Maynard Jackson's ex-wife mm. wow yeah Yeah. yeah. Now,
0: it sure shows you too
1: networking mm-hmm. and relationships yeah. is yeah. everything well I mean it's everything because when I moved down here my largest mentor was, May- was uh, Maynard Jackson mm. the former mayor of Atlanta who at that time had left office but he was running Jackmont Securities which was a securities firm um, as in um, you know Wall Street Securities mm. and he was like hey let me just show you the ropes here I had an opportunity and negotiated a lot with another good friend of mine, Joel Katz, about joining his firm, which was Katz Smith & Cohen at the time. He was a leading entertainment lawyer in town who had everybody from, you know, James Brown all the way through. Um, well, we just couldn't strike a deal. So we're still friends, but we just couldn't get a deal on what the back end was going yeah, to yeah, be. Yeah, yeah, So Maynard said, hey, these are my guys, um, uh, uh, Sherman Golden and – race sales and it was sales good low and golden and he said basically they do all not all but the majority of the city's municipal bond work mm. they don't do any entertainment so it'd be a good place for you to hang your hat and do your thing while you're getting admitted into georgia so my first two and a half years i was downtown on p street street um in the uh portman building mm. uh i think it's trust plaza now um and that's where i housed myself on the 43rd floor for the first three years I'm totally up top.
0: All the way up top. Why does it seem like, I mean, I'm a Brooklyn kid, but why does it seem like everything in Atlanta happens on Peachtree Street?
1: Because Peachtree is like our, our combination of Broadway, okay. Madison, and Fifth all rolled into one long-ass street. That's okay. Peachtree Street. Okay. Let's go over some more. Are we uh, Silk. Yeah. Silk. My office manager, who's okay. sitting right out there, Louise, yep, Louise, has been Silk's manager and road manager, and not, well, booking agent.
2: Really? Yeah. Her
1: son's been their road manager, um, as as his dad was prior to that. But Louise, actually, another Brooklynite, mm. she moved down here to Stone Mountain five years before I did. She used to work for me in New York, so we've been together over twenty five, twenty six years. Damn, that's like a marriage. Yeah, it is. <laughs> she, Long, almost as long as my first marriage. <laughs> <laughs> hey,
0: listen, you know, is it is it hard to stay married and be successful?
1: Yes and no. I mm-hmm. mean, it, 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 it requires more of a challenge. And that's why I think when you have a couple that both are actively working sure. and both of them have active careers, you know, your energies and your time and your focus are split. Um, but, you know, fortunately, you know, thank goodness my first marriage was 27 years, three great kids. Um, And we just got to that point where we kind of just drifted apart over time. Mm. But, you know, the business will kind of pull you apart Mm. if you let it. Mm. Now, my wife that I've been married to now, beautiful woman named Pamela, we've been married 10 years. I can't go on a trip without her. She's Mm. like, nah. (laughs) It's It's not happening. She's like, you're going to L.A., i'm coming you going to jamaica i'm coming <laughs> and i love it because you know we're two of a kind we have uh, you know a bunch of common common uh likes and needs and desires and that's basically what we do together and she travels with me and we have a great time and she's really sociable mm. um so it's a perfect you need match. A partner man you know you have to have I'm, a partner yeah yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm otherwise about. you're doing it solo and there's nothing wrong with doing a solo but, you know, God said, man, is meant to have a partner. Mm, mm. You know, um, you also had Ashanti.
0: Yeah. Um, yeah. How yeah. is that? Are you still representing still her? Still work
1: with her, not as often as possible. Um, I did her last deal, which uh, put out her last two albums on Entertainment One. Mm. I started working with her when she was 14 years old. Wow. Yeah, and we had a bunch of contracts, including one from Diddy, mm. which we decided, nah, thank you, but let's do something different. So hooked up with a friend of mine, Ron Sweeney. He was over at Epic at the time Yep, and uh, ultimately uh, went to work over there. Um, but she's still in the groove and on, on a nice grind because she's been able to diversify her career. Mm. So she doesn't have to rely just on selling records. That's just a vehicle these days. So she spends as much time, if not more, um, just doing television and motion picture production as she does, singing on stage. Sure,
0: and and I see her touring. Yeah. Um, music Soul Child?
1: Yeah, yeah. Soul Child music um, is interesting because um, I represented music one-on-one for a number of years, but then had to kind of back out of uh, just representing him directly to avoid a conflict because I also represented his managers, okay, Mike McArthur and Jerome Hips. And I represented his producers, who were uh, Carvin and Ivan, out of out of
0: Philadelphia. At one point in time, how many clients do you have? Like, how many clients do you have now? Do you know?
1: Do you go by a list? I, I I don't know, but I would say probably during any given day, I may work on matters for maybe twenty different clients. Mm. But during any given six month period, I may work on matters for like a hundred different clients. Now, are you talking about like contracts and stuff like that, also transactional. I don't. I hate. Who, going to court? Who deals with
0: you, you like? How nah, nah,
1: If litigation comes up, I refer it out to a friend and a colleague, depending on what city. And I may do second seat, but I'm not going to run into court and file briefs and motions. That's it's, it's mind boggling. So you're handling you do, really do. I do the business transactions and negotiations, the deals we call it transactional work. Mm-hmm. So if they need a company set up, I uh, you know file copyrights and trademarks, I negotiate their deals and draft them and kind of orchestrate uh, introductions and. You know, whatever it might be, if it's entertainment, it's something that I do. So it's not just in the music industry; it's music, film, television, uh, live theatrical, in terms sure. of stage, international licensing, brokering deals, that kind of stuff. So and it's, and it's a global practice. So there's always some interesting things going on with some real serious and significant characters.
0: Sure. What would you say the worst part of your job is? Hmm. If you
1: had to think about it. Wow. The worst part, the worst part, the worst part. I guess the worst part. Up, oh, there's that clock. There we go, yeah. There's Banneker letting us know it's on the hour. And this time, this is on the hour. He's, he's going to chime five times. It's okay, it's okay. Good. <laughs> yeah, so you were saying the so worst I'm part. Leah, of let me give some thoughts on the worst part. Um, I guess the worst part, and I can't identify it with one specific client. But I would say the worst part is knowing that, you know, you've given some advice, um, that it hasn't been followed. Mm, mm. And now you're being asked for for all kinds of different things, business-wise or personal. And now you're being called on to kind of pick up the pieces Mm. um, that you know could have been avoided.
2: Mm,
0: mm. Okay. Okay. I'll tell you one thing. That clock is a beautiful thing. Yeah. Yeah,
1: it definitely. Is. I
0: like the way you said. This time it's going to ring, uh, you know, yeah. five times. Uh-huh. We spoke about what's the worst party job. What to this day do you still look forward to coming into the office? Like, what do you like doing about your job? Because
1: people see a lawyer,
0: yeah. they automatically, you know, look at it like, oh, this guy makes money, a lawyer. Yeah, yeah. You know, what's fun about being a lawyer? well? You know,
1: I don't do it just for the money. I mean, you got to have the money to keep it going, sure. And you got to have enough money to enjoy it. Sure. So I, I would say, yeah, I don't have enough money to retire. Mm. Uh, which is what keeps me going. Well, what would be, I mean, but, what's money to retire? like? Well, these days, I mean, you know, if you don't have several million dollars in investments, mm-hmm. you know, you can retire, yeah, mm-hmm. but at what level? Because you got to figure out a third of that's going to taxes. Sure. So even if you were making $500,000 a year in terms of retirement income by the time you take out your tax money, you know, it could be a third of that gone. So that leaves you with a couple of hundred grand. And if you still got to pay a mortgage or bills by the time you finish, you know, there's no money for wine. Sure. <laughs> you know, we'll,
0: uh, let's get back to where we're saying the best part of his job. So yes, the out. best
1: part of the job is just being involved in success. Mm. So I'm not one who can sing and get up on stage. So and you entertain. were never an artist. Nah, I didn't want to be. I mean, you know, I played violin. Never and, had no bars. I played uh, trumpet when I was in okay. you know uh, junior high school okay. and, and and elementary school, but that was about it i never wanted to be a musician i don't have musician talent so that was never my thing i was always behind the scenes so even when i was at cornell i was a disc jockey on the radio so that was fun i was a concert promoter so we did local concerts with stevie wonder and shaka Khan and others nice. and that was fun we made some money and got in the business that way and did you now, have a relationship
0: with stevie yeah still do yeah. Lynn. Like, yeah. Really? Yeah. And and yeah. what is, for people who don't know Stevie Wonder, like, you know, personally, how? Well, I mean, he, he? he's
1: rare. I mean, guys like Steve are geniuses that are, um, when you're in their presence, you just get humbled. And there have been some, some clients and some folks and that, that I've been around in the business that I've either worked with or just been friends and colleagues with who you just respect, I mean, it's not like you're going to run up to them and ask them for their signature or autograph, sure, sure, sure. you develop a relationship um, and you just respect them for what they do. And sure. that's part of the reward of this of this gig, of what I do. I mean, I, I enjoy, um, for example, being backstage, watching a client on stage and you look out in the audience and there's like 5, 10, 15,000 people singing every single word work to a work. song the and things that you they're going on. and they're spending 50 bucks on the merchandise and... You know, they're just enjoying themselves because we're in the entertainment business. So I just enjoy the business of entertainment as opposed to being like a corporate lawyer or a real estate lawyer, or criminal lawyer, or baby mama drama lawyer. Not that those are negative. It's just not for me. It doesn't bring the same amount of, of fulfillment. And it's hard to get a passion for something that you're really not excited about doing. So every day for me is different. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I may do the same kinds of things, but it's rare that I'll do two things identical Two days in a row
0: you know the basics are taught in law school, but uh, what has uh, been ex- what has experience taught you that school uh, hasn't you know
1: Well, you know undergrad and law school are good for teaching you the methodology, mm. not for the exact information that you're going to need to really get out there and practice per se, so it, it gives you a framework to think, to analyze and to write. And it gives you an ability to access the law when you need to figure out what the heck the law is. But outside of that, you can't take that and walk into a law office and go into practice the very next day because you just don't have the actual hands on on a job training skill set, which is yeah. why people are associates and they're grunts and they're, you know, interns for a number of years before they really kind of step out there and are able to do it on their own.
0: Mm-hmm. You know, um, What uh, when you really think about it now that we're talking about deals or talking about experience and and things you've learned? What's the biggest deal you ever closed?
2: Mm.
1: Wow! And then I have it's a two-part question. Once you tell
0: me the biggest deal you ever closed, I have a two-part question.
1: That's pretty good. Um, I would say on the let's just call it the straight-up entertainment side for clients. um, No one deal but let's just for example last year one of my clients um was a Jamaican guy that nobody knew about because a few years before that he was a policeman in Jamaica and he befriended uh, a long time client who was really like my adopted brother named Specialist Clifton Dillon down in Jamaica he's one of the architects of successful reggae he you know kind of molded and structured the careers of artists like Sha and Patra and Matt Cover and Buju Banton. Mm-hmm. So, Omi was his Barrington late, Levy. Barrington Levy, man. Yeah, I represented Barrington. And really? Yeah, yeah. One of my favorite Shaka Demus and Plias, Barrington Levy, Third World. So, Jamaica was like my second home, still is for like many, many years, but one of my great friends and, a, and an intelligent, really sharp producer, artist manager, artist development guy, specialist. So, this guy named Omi uh, Omar Paisley mm-hmm. came into his, his studio and office a number of times saying, Hey, man, listen to this track. The specials, go back, go back, needs more work. And ultimately, got to the point where Special says, You got something. Mm. So he took it to his guys, Sly and Robbie, and a few others down in Jamaica, and they put the twist on it. And the twist that they put came out to be a song called Cheerleader.
0: Mm. Okay. So wow. a couple of years well, that's ago. a couple of years ago.
1: Cheerleader was the song of the summer yeah. for 2015. Um,. Oh, was it 2016? Just last year. It was a song in the summer last year. Mm-hmm. Um, number one in 37 countries. Um, did uh, 500 million streams, 5 million downloads. So this guy Omi, who nobody knew about it except the Klan and the posse in Jamaica, went from being just a Jamaica favorite to a worldwide phenomenon. Mm-hmm. TV shows touring all over the world. So literally, he went from being, you know, just a policeman making $15,000 a year. To a multimillionaire, wow! So naturally, that took a lot of different deals, and those different deals they add up to a lot of money for everybody who's involved. So that's the beauty of being in a music business, like Nat knows. Um, you know, Nat Robinson discovered Amon, mm-hmm. and together, you know, they went from Eamon who to yeah. like give that kid it's a, a multi-millionaire, check, yeah. yeah, yeah. And that's the beauty of our business. You just never know. Where that diamond in the rough is going to be?
0: So, so you've been in the business how long? Have you been in wow, now? thirty so years, thirty five plus, thirty five years.
1: Yeah. So you're saying
0: that deal was the biggest one you made?
1: Not the biggest one that I made because I made you know because it's all relative. Yeah.
0: Well, because, how about So, I, like
1: years ago? You know when I, when I would make deals for like whether it's Shaba ranks or Third World or made deals for Music Soul Child or made mm-hmm. deals for Jermaine Dupri or Teddy Riley and. You know, all the other artists I represent, those were big deals at the time. But, you know, money 10 years ago and 20 years ago is not the same as money today. Sure, sure. So they were big then. But, you know, now you multiply the same deal by 10 or 20. And then that really adds up to be significant. You know, I, you know, some of the deals I do, you know, the checks that come across the door are seven figure checks. Wow. And they're beautiful. I wish they would all stay in my account. <laughs> you got to transfer know, them out. Hey, you know, I take my my little percentage and then I keep on spreading it around to everybody who needs to get paid. But yeah, they're multi-million dollar deals. Yeah.
0: You know, now I know a lot of people level, you know, in a lot of lawyers I know are very actually, you know, they're very smart. You know, mm-hmm. obviously, not actually me. Obviously, they're very smart. Um, make money, you know. When, you know, I don't want to get into your pockets, but when you made say, your first million dollars. Mm -hmm. Did that change you?
1: It doesn't. I don't think it changes your personality. It may, in the short term, just change your consumption habits. Mm. So, you know, I I don't think professionals are that much different from talent that when you first start making money, you start buying and wanting to acquire all the things that you couldn't get before. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, basically. So, you know, instead of driving a Hooptie, you know, you might drive a Benz or a BMW. And, you know, instead of driving, you know, just the, the five series or the three series, you want to drive the seven series instead of driving like a you know BMW or a, a small Benz, you want the 500 or 600 series. So instead of living in a three bedroom house, you might want a five bedroom house. Sure. So it just gives you more opportunity to enjoy some of the finer things in life. And for me, it's just being able to enjoy life, to travel and spend time with my family and my wife and friends. and Drink great wine, see great places. We love to go to Italy once a year and spend a couple of weeks sure. there. We love to go to Napa and spend time there. With, you know, got to go Ch-
0: to, uh, in Sicily, uh, is a couple Teormina, of- man. We got to go to Casa Mara the Golf. Ah. It's a small little place with oh, yeah, beautiful where? food. Uh, it's in Sicily. Yeah. It's a small little place. I, I'll show you- uh, I got to um, check that out. I'll tell you one thing. One of the most exciting and interesting things I uh, that I learned about Sicily uh, is there's a lot of women mob bosses oh yeah yeah wow which is something that's very you they, know they different. outlived the dudes well either that or they took over once
1: they went died or went <laughs> away you know <laughs> they you weren't know? the targets the guys all got killed or went to jail <laughs> but no i mean my wife and i love italy that's a, that's in terms of europe that's our favorite destination for vacation so we try to go every year we discovered Taormina last year which nice. is just like right near mount Etna, and it's like wow so we love it there and you know the whole you know, Amalfi uh, Coast with Positano mm-hmm. and spend some time in Tuscany and Umbria and that area. Get so. that mozzarella out there.
0: Fresh. The Beautiful. Fresh. Let me tell you something. The mozzarella they have out there is the products they have yeah, out so, there. It,
1: you know what? Uh, French and Italian, I prefer Italy to France, but I love France too, but Italy better. The French and Italian look at Americans as barbarians when mm-hmm. it comes to mm-hmm. food yes. because yep. we don't really have any palliative training sure. about food. Sure. We're so into fried foods and fast foods and you know, prepackaged foods True. with chemicals, and right, right there is farm to table.
0: That's why I tell people to. Uh, we're going to take a break in a second, but that's why I tell people to. In New York, they have dollar slices, and the reason why I tell people dollar slices are garbage, they're shit, they're no good, is because the products that they're putting together a slice of pizza with for a dollar cannot be good. You know, when you go to Italy and you see the mozzarella and and the grated cheese mm-hmm. and the sauce and, thin and the crust. yeast. You know what I mean? These yeah, products—that's why. That's why people like in Brooklyn is this uh, pizza spot called DeFara. Mm-hmm. You know, they get all their stuff from Italy. they have five dollars a slice. Yeah, but you're paying you, for quality. It's worth it. You know, yeah. At the end of the day, that's what it is. No comparison. But I'm not trying to make this a pizza episode. Internet, hey. listen, we're sitting here with the legendary Kendall Minther. Okay, um, man, just going over the journey, man. So many stories. So many. Oh yeah. So, so many clients. We got to get back in. Let's take a break. We'll be right back. All right.
2: Cheers. Hey, this is Adam Twenty Two. This is London the Plug. And you're rocking with premium, P. We're doing this podcast thing, and we're going to go eat some stromboli after. Let's get it.
0: Internet's in. We're back sitting here with Kendall Minter. Um, Paul Marshall, uh, from, according to Nat Robinson, mm-hmm. the another legendary yeah, person, absolutely, yeah. says that uh, you are the best contract writer ever in entertainment. Uh, mm-hmm. well, why that's, do you think he said that? Do you know? Well,
1: for one, that's quite a compliment coming from an icon like Paul. Mm-hmm. Was he a mentor growing up? Paul wasn't a mentor. He was more of a colleague and a friend. Um, We knew each other back from the initial days when I was trying to break into the New York entertainment law circles. So he was supportive of of me in that regard. Um, And we did deals together. Um, I also did deals with other guys in his firm. and. He had one of those small boutique legendary entertainment law firms in Mm. New York that everybody aspired Mm. to be involved with, as as well as I did when I was in D.C. trying to come back to New York and interview with one of his partners, Monty Morris. Mm. Um, And I unfortunately didn't get an offer. But when I supplanted myself into New York, obviously we began to do business together. And, you know, one of the things that I learned – Um, When I was at Cornell and then also with my first job in the general counsel's office at Fairchild was they don't really teach you to draft, per se, when you're in law school. You get the basics because you got to do briefs and stuff like that. But I think I really learned to draft when I went to work at my first private practice firm, Burns, Jackson, Miller, Suburban, and Jacoby, because as an Mm. associate, you know, they let you out of the library and out of your office, like maybe on a full moon when it's blue. Other than that, it's like, you know, you got to sit down, grind out those drafts. The partners are kicking you in your ass. It's a struggle. You know, there's a lot of nights when it was either take out Chinese food or Mm -hmm. pizza. And then what, you know, the joy of that was if you worked after 9 o'clock, you got to take a private black car home. Yes, yes, okay. The black car service. So I was like, All right, I'll stay until 9 o'clock. Big Apple. Exactly, yeah. When it's case citywide where I still have an account. Yeah. So, you know, you would uh, order bad food, pizza at like 7 o'clock, work a couple of more hours, and then get out of there on a private car at 9. But it was really just about being a a student, Mm -hmm. even when you're on a full-time employee. And I just took it for – that was my mission. I had to learn how to write contracts, interpret contracts, read them, because if it wasn't perfect, the parties would kick my ass And they would send me back into the office or into the library to do some more research. And I hated that. So I just wanted to do everything I could to minimize that kind of embarrassment. Mm -hmm. You
0: know, you represented the Backstreet Boys. Yeah. How the hell did this happen?
1: Wow. Big Lou, may he rest in peace. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, Lou Pearlman just passed away in in jail last year. Mm -hmm. Um, But that was a period when I was working and representing Lou Pearlman. Um, transcontinental and transcontinental records was an offshoot of transcontinental airlines because mm. lou made his money in airships blimps like the goodyear blimp wow, stuff yeah. like that he owned a fleet of blimps that he rented out and in private did advertisement on them? that's it and private jets which he rented out that was transcontinental airlines out of orlando hangers and the whole bit down at the airport he wanted to be in the music industry he was um, you know, uh, Simon and Garfunkel mm-hmm. Garfunkel was his cousin. Wow. So he came from that musical family. He was from Queens, New York and Lou and I met, he didn't have an entertainment lawyer. Um, I met, uh, Johnny Wright. It was Johnny Wright and Donna at that time, his wife at the time, and they went into business together. Johnny would be the uh, talent finder and the manager. Lou would be like the entertainment guru, putting all of the pieces together. And he came up with this idea of a boy band, the Backstreet Boys. So they did auditions, they cherry-picked them, they put the band together, and essentially what they did was they toured them around the uh, high school scene. So they got a huge national audience of high school girls who loved them like crazy, built up a fan base, and started putting music together. That led to um, um, Ed Eckstein... Was a brother who had been around the business for years, still is a little bit. Ran Mercury Records, and you know we got an in, we sat, we talked. I negotiated the deal with the Polygram, Polydor, Mercury mm-hmm. Records folks. Ed Exstein was about to sign the deal. We signed the deal and sent it back, and then he called me in the office and said, "Kendall, you know what? You know, I can't close the deal. There's never, in my opinion, ever going to be another new kids on the block." I said, what now nah. he says, it's just not going to happen. So I can't do this backstreet boys deal. So we said, all right, that's fine. So we went around the corner. Um, and then, you know, at that time, jive and Zamba, were huge businesses owned by Clive Calder, um, Clive and the crew over there, Clive and Barry Weiss and the rest of the crew, they got it. We did the deal. Um, and as they say, is the rest is history. From Did
0: they know that you were just around the corner with the yeah.
1: other guys? Oh yeah, yeah. We told them because we, we, you know, we got basically we got Polygram and Mercury to pay us twenty five grand to leave peacefully. Mm, really? Yeah, yeah. Cause Why for wasting your time? After wasting our time, you know, we signed a deal, negotiated. <laughs> they had agreed on the terms, and they refused to close it. Yeah, so just, they paid.
0: Just because the guy was closed minded to think that
1: he the, just didn't think there was going to be another boy band, mm, mm. and unfortunately, the rest is history. Because Lou went on from. Backstreet, to In Sync, sure. to 98 sure, Degrees, sure, to sure. Justin Timberlake, ah, to on and on and on. And he created the boy band phenomenon that was all housed in what was initially an office then became a small city in Orlando where he had a complete rehearsal facility and offices and studios and training sessions. And he ran a huge business. The unfortunate thing is he was doing Ponzi schemes and that's yeah, what yeah. took him to jail. Yeah, yeah. forget about it. Yeah, forget yeah.
0: about it. You <laughs> also represented Cool in the gang. Yeah, you yeah. know, you know, uh, one of the great things about Cool in the gang is my father used to. Sing, so my mother's name is Joanna. Wow. And so my father, he's on the air every day. Yeah, my father used to. Growing up, my father used to
1: sing that song to her yeah, in the house. Yeah, and, uh, yeah.
0: Yeah, you know, it was a great memory to you know. Well,
1: you know, those guys actually, uh, Robert Coolbell, yeah. one of the founders, obviously is a, still a close friend. Um, and I still currently represent George Brown, who's one of the wow. founding members of Cool in the Gang, because, um, about nine months ago, George, with another longtime friend of mine from France called Claude Ismael, set up a label that's based out in L.A. now called Astana Music, um, and it's owned by George, got about six artists that are signed in the studio and development. First artist is being released shortly, Chelsea, um... Actually, cool in the gang right now is on a plane to Asia. They left really? this morning out of, yeah, they left this mo- early this morning, so they're going to be in Asia for two weeks. The music doesn't stop. Man. No, no, you know what? And I was, I was looking at the music from the 70s mm. is still hip, current, and on the air every single day. There's another group of uh, behind the scenes, behind the microphones, producers, writers that I represent out of Italy. Mm. Guy named Maro Malavasi and mm. David Romani that most people probably never ever heard of, but in 1981 1982, they wrote a series of songs for an unknown group that was put together by a guy from Guadeloupe named Jacques Fred Petrus mm. called Little Macho Music. The group was called Change, mm. and that's where Luther Vandross came from. A group called Change. Some of the songs that you'll hear if you listen to you know the groove on the XM Sirius Satellite every day are. Searching, glow mm. of love, lovers' holiday. Mm. Janet Jackson sampled it. Classic, classic songs. This was back in the eighties. You ever met Luther? Yeah, oh, yeah. What was that conversation? Well, I, like? I represented a number of Luther's backup singers, mm. um, Kevin, and, and quite a few others. And so, yeah. Was, was he?
0: Was he? And I don't mean to say like this, uh-huh. but was he good to them? Like, meaning like he was. He, yeah. I mean, they were. He was
1: loyal to his people. Um, he was a perfectionist. Mm. So everything that you know came into the show was either approved or seen or orchestrated by Luther mm. the look the sound i mean you know like like Patty LaBelle sometimes he would get in the place and the air conditioner would be on and he'd turn it off because he didn't want to catch a cold sure. so you know just another one of those geniuses but you know they evolved from somewhere and for Luther it evolved from this group out of New York called Change that nobody ever knew about wow, until early I mean, I, mean 80s. I never knew that wow Glow of Love, Searching, Lover's Holiday, all of that kind of stuff written by by my clients and by Wayne Garfield and Tanya Willoughby. and These are things that were written 35 years ago that are still on air now, just like the Cool and the Gang Joanna song that you just mentioned. Classic music that just lives on and on and on and and fortunately pays the creators still every single quarter. It's amazing.
0: You know, you also represent... uh, Pastor
1: Creflo uh, Dollar. I sure did. Who, who, not not personally, and I didn't represent the church. I represented okay. Arrow Records. Okay. Arrow Records that releases their the, s- was the the music, sermon and the music. Yeah, it was a music division. Uh,
0: one of my good friends that used to live down here in Atlanta. Mm-hmm. His name is uh, Gerard Smith, mm-hmm. G Rock, he goes yeah. by. He brought me mm-hmm. uh, one day. I, I was telling him like, you know, I grew up Catholic. Yeah. Um, and the church got boring. Yeah. Um, and I really couldn't relate to the priest. and, yeah. and you know I, I still think well, it's I had ancient. my Catholic experiences yeah. too, so we'll share those. Yeah, I, I still think it's ancient, you know. Yeah. Anyway, uh, he brought me to uh, world Changes. to world I lo- Changes? I loved it. I loved it because he was. I felt like he was talking real life experiences, it's
1: stuff that you could relate to, and uh, you and know, in, it wasn't in part Latin. I know. I, I liked
0: it. I liked it. So, yeah, so no. what do you do? Like, what does an entertainment so,
1: lawyer do for, like, say, a preacher? I've represented. You know? I mean, fortunately, since I moved down here to Atlanta, my first gospel client. Uh, back in 1995, was Kirk Franklin.
0: That's right. That's right. Yeah. You also, man, let me tell you something. Not before, I don't want to cut uh-huh. you off, but you have, I mean, there's a, a bunch of uh, uh, gospel artists. Yeah, I've been blessed had. with that, yeah. Kirk Franklin. Kirk Franklin, Franklin and Fred, Fred Hammond, Fred, yep.
1: and then I represented the music ministries at a number of what we call mega churches down here. So I did Montel Aron, Jordan, Montel Jordan um, and his church. Um, New Birth Missionary Baptist Church where Bishop Long was my bishop until he passed uh, last uh, number of months ago earlier this year. Why do people give Krefler uh, a hard time about all this private jet stuff and you know
0: what yeah, this is a guy that
1: you know yeah. um is a businessman. Well that's the key. You know and and it gets real dicey when you try to mix ministry with politics with business. And he influences and has a positive impact on the lives literally of you know, if not tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people all around the sure. world because there's probably at least 20,000 people just here in the Atlanta market. The world changes, not to mention in New York and all the affiliated churches. Same thing with Bishop Long before he passed. He had an entire ministry with churches all throughout the United States as well as in Okinawa. Um, Is he and- one of the biggest in, in what he does? He. Creflo Dollar is is one of what we call the what I call the super mega ministers evangelists mm-hmm. in the United States. And then again, we have this this black world versus this white world. Sure. And the black world is called gospel and the, the other side of the coin is called Christian. Christian yeah. But, you know, at the end of the day, it's all praise music. Um, and with with Creflo Dollar, I mean, he's caught heat because, you know, his enjoyment of private jets, he's yeah. not the only one to fly private. Um, but you know, the, the, the enhancement and the upgrade of one Gulf Stream to another caught the news. Yeah. So we backed off on it until the heat died down and then after the heat died down, you know, the board of directors and the parishioners and the church members still said, Hey, get your jet. Yeah. He's like doing God's work and he's entitled to it. But you know what? I look at ministers, mega ministers, I I look at them and the work they do and I I um equivocated to being governors or mayors of large villages or cities Mm. because like in a typical mega church here in the South, it might have anywhere from 10 to 25,000 members. Well, that's a small town in some parts of America and they take care of educational needs. They take care of some health needs. They, you know, they deal with everything from marriage to baptism to funerals. So they really are like the mayors and the governors of their particular ministerial village. And, you know, just like our our um, senators and congressmen and our cabinet members who like to fly private, they like to fly private too. You
0: know what I love about uh, Creflo? Um First of all, like I was explaining, World Changes Church in Atlanta. Uh, to me, when I went there, was like Madison Square Garden. I mean, the the yeah. place was yeah, enormous, it's huge. But one thing I really liked is uh, he had a situation. You know, I have an older daughter, mm-hmm. and uh, oh, there's the clock. Yep. And uh, I have an older daughter, and and and. I think he went through something where she, they tried to say like he put his hands. Oh on yeah, her or whatever yeah, he disciplined her. Yo, know, he came out that Sunday, mm-hmm. just walked up to the uh, 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 the podium mm-hmm. and said everything is fine in mm-hmm. the Dollar household, right? And yeah. went on with his business. I was like, Yo, that guy is a gangster, man.
1: That's it. And, and well, be- you know, it's because you're in a spotlight, sure. And you know, if you hit your kid. You, you can hit your kid these days and you can go to jail because sure. they can file a complaint against you for abuse. Sure. And depending on who you are, they'll either say, oh, forget about it. Or, hey, look who did this. Yeah, and yeah, he's, yeah. he's in the spotlight. So and try to sp- ruin
0: you. And try to ruin you.
1: With the spotlight comes scrutiny and comes haters. Yeah. It's part of the business.
0: How do you deal? I mean, I know you're older. You probably don't look at it like this. But how do you deal with haters? Like people like, you know, yeah, i sure other.
1: I've got my share of haters. i got folks that are detractors. Some folks that I may have never, ever met done business with or come across but I'll get secondhand reports that you know so and so and so is really down on you like you don't do this you didn't do that or you can't do this and you know at the end of the day I dismiss it um, unless there's something that I know that I could have done and shouldn't and sure. didn't do or shouldn't have done and did um, because there's always going to be detractors when you have some level of success mm. there's always some jealousy there's always contempt um, and it's just part of what we do On any level.
0: You know, Jay Z uh, uh, told us, he says, I'm going to show you how to move in a room full of vultures. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I think uh, that's a key also for me. And I I like, that's why I love sitting down with people like yourself because, you know, growing up as a New Yorker, as a Brooklyn Knight. some of us particularly took things way too personal. Mm-hmm. And in the music industry, I feel like if you take things per- too personal, you'll never, you, gonna... you got to get yeah. out. Yeah, yeah. Cause
1: it'll drive you crazy. You got to learn to just yeah, you gotta, moving, like, like water smile. off a duck's back. You got to let it slide right off of you. And you know, sometimes if it's, if it's correct, then you have to be able to accept criticism. Yeah. But you know, there's a lot of stuff that'll come at you. That's like from left field and you have to understand it's from left field and not let it stop you in the path of what you're trying to do.
0: Yeah. You know, one thing I really admire about you is that you've been able to evolve over time. Um and what I mean by that is like, you know, go from CD sales to to look at, you know, uh, digital downloads now you talk about streams. Mm. You know, uh we talk about Pandora and all these other places. You know, I looked at something like I think like Pharrell, they said for Happy he had like 11 million mm. streams. That he he's getting like 100,000 or 200,000. Yeah. Yeah. Is 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 are they jerking the artists? And I don't mean to say it that way, but meaning like is it not meant for the artist to make money if you're going to have 11, 12, 13 million streams and it's such
1: pennies on the dollar yeah well the business model's completely changed mm. it's evolved as we call it um and it's evolved to less money in the pockets of the creators and that's real simple because if you look at let's not even go back as far as you know vinyl but let's just say CDs okay you know CDs were popping they were selling at wholesale for 10 bucks selling at retail on the store shelves for 12 to 15 dollars a pop. Mm-hmm. But basically what went back to the record company was 10 bucks a pop for a CD. Then that evolved into digital downloads. So the digital download basically if you wanted an album on iTunes it was like 10 bucks. True. But 99, then 99. iTunes started giving people the opportunity to cherry pick an album apart. So you could just buy one, one or two tracks. Yep, yep. So that took things out of the album format into the option of just taking... So you
0: think that hurt that?
1: It definitely hurt it because people had the option of not taking the whole album, which might have some garbage tracks on it that you wouldn't want to listen to anyway, but listen to and buy only the things that you like, which might have been the hit single. You're right. You
0: know why? Because I think about it, me growing up, you, you got to listen to an album front to back. Yeah. Because you know, if you give it a couple of listens, you say, oh, shit, there's a couple of songs on that That's right. I do like, yeah. and some of those never see the daylight.
1: Right, because if they're not singles played on the radio and promoted... And you don't have to buy the album. The only exposure you're going to get is what's being pushed by the labels and the radio stations, which is the single. So people are going to prefer to pay a dollar, maybe a dollar twenty-nine on iTunes to download a single instead of paying ten bucks to download the entire album. So, and now with streaming, streaming has has really supplanted and and surpassed what's happening with the digital download. So for the first time last year, music consumption. Is predominantly streaming in the format of dollar revenue. Mm -hmm. But what that means is that now instead of getting even a dollar to a dollar 29 on an iTunes download, a record company and an artist will see a fraction of a penny per stream for that track a hundredth to a thousandth of a penny. So that means you got to have literally millions of streams, millions of YouTube views just in order to be able to afford a dinner.
0: But who's 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 making this money? Is it is it the streaming dis- services? So they're not distributing. It's
1: how- the streaming services. Yeah, I mean, and you know, they argue, for example, the streaming services, and I and I understand the argument. They will pay as much as fifty percent to sixty percent of their gross revenue for the licenses to play the music. Mm-hmm. So while they may take in, let's just say, a billion dollars for one streaming service. they may only net a fraction of that, maybe a third of that is actually net profit because they have to pay a lot out for the right to play the music that's bringing them in the billion dollars. But at the end of the day, when you trickle it down to the artist whose music is being played, the record companies who are financing the music, the publishers and the writers who are writing the songs, they're getting fractions of pennies per stream, per play, because of the negotiations that are going on on Capitol Hill every year.
0: You know, I've said this before, and I just want to get your opinion. You know, uh, in this day and age, an artist, sometimes they could just put out an album for free because mm-hmm. there's really no money in it. The money is touring. Well, look at Chance the
1: Rapper, man. Yeah, yeah. You know, Chance is making a lot of money right now, but he's not making a lot of money because he sold, initially, a lot of downloads. He used music as a vehicle. Mm. And these days, the, the business has changed that, you know, when you go up and down my hallway, you'll see the gold and platinum records. those are dinosaurs now. Those things ain't happening anymore. You know, you can count on one hand the number of platinum plaques that are issued by the by the industry in a six-month period now. It still now. means something, though. It I mean, it means still something. means something, but people are... Not, here's a here's a classic example. I'm sure you... Uh, I'm assuming that you might have on your phone a subscribe to either Pandora, Spotify, or X. Okay, so... I know what it, yeah. Like most people. Apple Music. So now... On on even on a premium service with Tidal or Apple, you might be paying 20 bucks a month. But for that, you got access to a few million songs. So you now have consumption access to a few million songs for 20 bucks a month, whereas on the old model, you would pay 20 bucks for two albums. Yeah. That's the difference in the economics. So people are preferring to stream their music they get it on a consumption and access basis as to an ownership basis, which you what you would have with either buying a physical CD or purchasing a download to a hard drive. You know,
0: uh, perfect segue. You wrote a book. I um, did. Uh, negotiating 360 Deals. Yes. You know, that you could find, I'm sure, in uh, Amazon, sure, Barnes yeah. & Noble's yeah. all over. Um, why do people, artists particularly, or managers or, or people in the industry say, Stay away from 360 deals. Like, Why do they make it like it's such a problem?
1: Well, it is if you're on the artist side. It's, okay. a, it's a financial burden. The reality is as of about 10 years ago, if you're a new artist getting a deal, chances are that 90% of the time that you're going to be offered a deal, it's going to have a 360 clause in it. And the 360 clause evolved specifically for the same purpose that we were just talking about because the revenue sources that companies had from sales of CDs and digital downloads is dwindling and dwindling and continued to decrease, slowly being amplified now by streams, but not to the same amount as the loss from the physical and digital sales. So they had to find another way to make more revenue. The way they make more revenue is by saying, you're a new artist. We're spending hundreds of thousands or tens of thousands of dollars to break, establish, and put your music out. We don't want to just rely anymore on getting some money from streams sure. and some dwindling download money. If you're making money because of our investment, we want to share in that just like your manager does.
0: How much do they want to take?
1: It'll vary. The the, the 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 opening shot most of the time across the bow is 20 to 25% of the gross. And that's why I put the book out to educate people who want about what 360 deals are, to understand them see where they came from so you see the evolution of where it was to where it is now i give them samples of what a 360 clause looked like in a record contract and kind of wrap it up with a few nuggets and jewels about these are the things that you or your attorney or representative could ask for and negotiate and put into a deal that kind of lessens the economic impact against the artist but at the end of the day if you're a new artist it's gonna have a 360 clause in there because the record companies have to make up the lost revenue sure are you a fan of 360 deals Depends on who my client is. Mm, mm. I represent artists, I represent independent labels, I represent independent producers. So when I'm representing the artists, I hate the three sixty deals. Mm. When I'm representing my label clients and my producer clients, the three sixty clauses in the contract. Mm. So, you know, I can't say I'm a contract hoe, but <laughs> <laughs> I, I put in the agreement clauses to benefit my particular client. That's why you just have to be knowledgeable about depending on where sure. you are on the on the side of the table. What do you need to do to protect your best interest? Because sure. it's a balancing question.
0: Now the segue. Uh, can you explain Sound Sound Exchange to us?
1: Sure. I'm on the board of Sound Exchange. I represent, along with nine other colleagues, the artist community. The other side of the table is represented by the label community. Because Sound Exchange membership is in two categories: labels and artists. Sound recording copyright owners are the labels, and the artist membership. The money that Sound Exchange collects, which is just under a little a little under a billion dollars a year now, gets divided fifty percent to the artist side, fifty percent to the label side. What Sound Exchange does and has done for the last dozen years is they collect money from the streaming services that we were just talking about. Sure. Non-interactive digital streams, Pandora, XM Series, Spotify, Tidal, um, Apple Music, all Amazon, all the others, even the radio stations that have dot coms. Those are all non-interactive streaming services. They all pay a license fee that's collected and paid into SoundExchange. Um, and it's tracked by the metadata, the ISRC codes that are embedded in all the music that's played. So it can be tracked for streaming or uh, reporting. And then SoundExchange pays either on a monthly or quarterly basis the labels and the artists for the you know, almost billion dollars that, uh, that it takes in every year. People confuse it because they don't do their homework. They say, you know, I don't need to join SoundExchange because I'm with ASCAP or BMI, but they don't know. Mm. ASCAP and BMI are publishing. SoundExchange has nothing to do with publishing. It's all a completely brand-new copyright, and it's a performing right that was legislated by, um, by, by uh, an act of Congress a number of years ago that says there's now a performance right in sound recordings. There's an income flow that goes with it. And it goes to record company, record companies, and artists. Mm.
0: What's the longest client you ever had?
1: It would have to go back to Roy Ears. I, I started representing Roy in 1980, mm. Mm. and he's still a good friend. His family, his wife, his daughter—I talk to on a weekly basis. Um, so, yeah, he's been with me for 37 years. Mm. That's amazing. Yeah.
0: Um, another thing I'm sure people listening would love to know is what are some of the books you read.
1: Wow. That's pretty broad. I mean, I, I read. What are you reading right now? Outside of Billboard magazine and New York Times and a few online things. Um, there is a, a, a book that um, is called um, uh, God's Promise. And there's God's Promises for Men and there's one for women. So naturally I'm reading the one for men. Um, there is another book that I'm kind of reading off and on to kind of keep me focused and keep me in in good graces and out of the doghouse with my wife called Marriage Talk. (laughs) Uh, And that's written by a bishop out of uh, Chesapeake, Virginia, which is pretty good because, you know, we have to be students on a regular basis. And this is something for relationships you have to work at. Um, And, you know, most of my reading time I do either when I'm just on down mode, you know, sitting on the beach or relaxing on vacation or on an airplane um, so I try to mix that with uh, industry periodicals and just basic news stuff. Desmond Tutu. Yeah. Tell us about him. Wow. That was another honor. That was one of those guys where I was just sitting in a room mystified by, wow, this is Desmond Tutu. I represented him a, a number of years ago when um, this as Mandela was coming out of um, Robben Island and you know, going into head up um, South Africa in the political mainstream. And we did a benefit concert, a birthday celebration for Desmond Tutu. And we also did a um, celebration for Mandela over in London at Wembley Arena. And uh, Tutu's niece um, got involved and she pulled me in. I was you know, living in New York at the time. So I basically was, again, behind the scenes, just putting together a lot of the docs and the paperwork that were necessary to to uh, make these series of events successful and raise money for the anti-apartheid cause. Did you get a
0: chance to meet uh, Nelson Mandela?
1: No, that was one regret that I have. I never had an opportunity. I've had clients who have been to his house, artists sure. who spend time with him, literally taking photos with him and Winnie. Yeah. he uh, had was a... It.
0: We had a uh, Mem- uh, Memphis Bleak on uh, an yeah. episode. He said him and Jay were out in uh, the yeah. house. He said that they had a chef. It was an yeah, amazing yeah. experience. He was really
1: a gracious guy. You know, it yeah. was
0: amazing. No, your 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 opinion. What mm-hmm. makes a successful artist and artist team today
1: wow. in this day and age? Well, on the artist side, you have to really be one talented. Obviously, mm-hmm. that's where it has to start from a God given talent or trained talent. But then you have to be focused, committed, and on the grind. Um, I was listening to um, a couple of the artists, Lionel Richie, and a couple of others this morning on an interview. Uh-oh, the clock? There we go. It's the quarter of, Mark. And this one's doing five times? Yeah, I got, no, two more, two more. Okay. So, again, Banne- Banneker's keeping us on track here and letting us know that time is passing. Sure. Time is money. Yeah, but I was listening to Lionel Richie and a couple of other the new American Idol judges this morning. They were like, people don't understand because they were talking about the contestants. You have to understand that this is a business where you got to be 100% committed. you got to understand there's going to be very little, if any, sleep. They were on three hours of sleep from last night's activities. And you just have to be willing to have a thick skin because you're going to get no, more no's than you will get yeses. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, it's important to understand that no person can do it by themselves. As they say, no man is an island. So in order to be a successful artist, you also have to have, if you're going to maintain it, and grow it a successful team around you, and that includes a lawyer, an accountant, and a business manager, a great talent agent, sure. a great personal manager, a great publicist. What do you think
2: people
0: you find? I mean, I know, Do you think they just come when you're talented, or it's word of mouth?
1: Yeah, uh, you know, uh, it, it's word of mouth and timing, because you know there are a lot of talent agents, but they're not, and a lot of good managers, but they're, they're, you know, there's only so many people that an agent or a manager can handle. So they've gotta, you know, kinda of look at who do I invest my time in? And sure. it's gonna be someone who's either successful already or on the cusp of success because you know, if you're a growing artist and developing artist and you're making a thousand dollars a night, your agents getting a hundred bucks a night, there's not a whole lot of incentive for them sure. to go out and book you versus the act that's getting fifty thousand dollars a night. <laughs> it's just the economics of it. So you you gotta kinda maybe move up and grow your team. As you become more and more successful,
0: who have you seen me mention like uh, who have you seen get some extreme amounts of money for a, a show you know have you dealt with wow. any artists that' get
1: <laughs> yeah yeah i mean i I represent um some concert investors uh, concert promoters um you know uh, for example, one of my clients um is out of uh Jess, is out of New York jesse Bozeman sun mm-hmm. song productions who's one of the deans of the black concert promotion circuit for like the last 30 years but i also represent a lot of other independent concert promoters all around the world so they'll call me and say hey i need chris brown or i need um j-lo and you know see if you can get him i'm working on a chris brown concert right now for a private wedding in india in december um, what type be, of budget is that i mean uh a million dollars plus wow yeah, yeah. You know, Lionel Richie and Stevie Wonder won't do individual dates for under 750 Wow. You know, you get people like Mary J. Blige, and, you know, she's 250 plus. Mm. You know, I got one client who wanted to do uh, Pitbull, so mm. we were negotiating for Pitbull. Um, Was yeah. he like 250 Plus, because then you got the private jet. Yeah. The private jet Which alone. What's some of the most craziest riders you ever seen? Have you- yeah, I mean, you know, not not so much crazy, but I mean, like, one of my clients and longtime friends, Dionne Warwick, she loves Cristal Rose. Yeah. So I mean, she wants she roses should. and flowers and Cristal Rose in her dressing room. Some other writers I've seen is like a, a bowl of jelly beans with some cognac. Let me tell you something, man. Dionne
0: Warwick made that's what friends are for. Yeah. And um, every, I come from a big Italian family. Yeah. And at every single hall party we had, whether it be a wedding yeah. or 16, we all get in a <clears throat> we all get in a circle. And that song plays, mm-hmm. and literally, like my mother has about four or five friends, fifty plus years. Mm. I, I literally almost think they're my aunts. And that song, I swear to you, is is, it's is classic. The the just yeah. the whole meaning of my yeah, family, it's classic, just, true meaning of yeah. uh, of love. Yeah. So get that lady roses and uh, absolutely, Christelle. she but deserves it. It's um it's amazing to see some of those you know um you know people getting a certain amount of money and stuff mm-hmm. like that, and, and 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 and. But where does that even like? Are you the person that that says, "Hey, I think you could get more," or not to somebody who's who's already established? Maybe, maybe somebody who's not. Like,
1: how how does someone figure
0: out what they're...
1: well market value? You determine market value based on chart positioning, based on record sales, based on demand, based on exposure, TV shows. You know, um, how many award shows have you been on stage for? And all of those things kind of build up. And it's the talent agents who go out and pitch. And they already know and have a general sense of how much they can command based on how much people are willing to pay. But, you know, once you've been out and established for a while, you know, your nightly fee is going to start at $100,000 and work up to about a million dollars. I had years ago there was um, some folks that wanted to do a private wedding in India again, and they wanted J-Lo. So I contacted Benny Medina mm-hmm. and we kind of got stuck because my guys didn't want to go over a million dollars. And she wanted more than that. What, mm-hmm. she wanted a million and a she half? She wanted a million plus. Yeah. So we weren't able to do the show. But, I mean, this was like 10 years ago. Yeah, yeah. She was hot. She's hotter now. I mean, she's still hot. But, but she's hotter yeah, now. Yeah. You know, with the television shows sure, and sure. everything else that she's doing. So it's just a point of reference to say, you know, a million dollars to some people is a lot of money. But 500 to a million dollars is a common range for, like, scores and scores and scores of artists. Yeah. That's per night. Hey, listen, that's crazy. You know, you have so
0: many accolades, and as we wind this episode down, you uh, you got the NBA Living Legend Entertainment
1: Attorney Award. Yes.
0: How, how did that happen? Like, wh- what did you do to get that? I don't know.
1: <laughs> <laughs> they just called me and said, hey, we're going to honor you this year. Are
0: you serious? I'm serious. Who, they called, who called you? David Stern?
1: No, no, no. It was, just, it was just, I forgot who it was, but they were like, we're just going to honor you this year. Um, and I'm like, I'm I'm humbled. So, I always accept it. I mean, the Living Legends Foundation gave me the Chairman's Award uh, two years ago. Um, tomorrow, I fly out to LA to do the nice. the, the annual Living Legends Award. I'm going to present it to um, two of my friends and colleagues, Vivian and Ray Chu. Mm-hmm. Vivian Chu's been around forever. We had great fun with Shaba Ranks and others at Epic. Shaba. Uh, Shaba. And then Ray Chu, you know, is, is her husband, yep. who basically is on not only every. TV show that uh, has awards and music bands behind it, but on Dancing with the Stars every Monday night. Legendary. So they're legendary, and I'm presenting them with their award uh, tomorrow night. Hey, listen, we, we're we going to
0: go back to this client list as we wind us down. Mm-hmm. Uh, Vander Holyfield.
1: Yeah, 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 yeah. How did so, that happen? Well, you know, there's a lot of athletes that have a lot of money that love music. Mm-hmm. If Vander's not the first. Mm-hmm. It just so happened that he was my client, and I kind of – Represented him for a number of years when his company, Real Deal Records, here in Atlanta, was in its heyday. Operating out of his 101 acre estate down in, uh, you know, just below the airport. And he had a. a uh, you ever go there? You know, oh, yeah, lots of times. Because the office was there, the studio was there, the training facilities were there, and all the artists would kind of call out their second home. So. He had a nice little run in the entertainment business, but a lot of athletes, too. He's not the first. Roy Jones and a whole bunch of others sure. dabble in the music industry. What is he doing now? Do you know? Evander's like kind of retired because he can't get a fight just because he's past that prime age that the boxing uh, authorities want to award fights to. So he's just living off the uh, monies that he made over the past from investments. You know, that's, that's a perfect
0: uh, segue to, so you're an entertainment lawyer very successful 35 years in the business made made tons of money done amazing things mm-hmm. is, how important is it to do stuff outside of it like meaning like okay van der hoefel a boxer but if a van hoefel invests in a tech company yeah like how the fuck is a van der hoefel worth 400 million well that's because you right. don't even realize yeah. do you invest yeah. in
1: things outside of entertainment lawyer and and yeah. your law business like you know what i mean and your own business you know sure um you know, I just subscribed, uh, case in point, just two weeks ago to this online publication called The Motley Fool mm. for 99 bucks, And now I'm about to, I can't give the stock ticker number, but now I'm about to buy this stock, a few shares of it, in the company that provides some of the guts for the new iPhone 8. Mm. And the stock is predicted to go through the roof. Mm, mm. So, uh, yeah, am um, and it's not insider trading because it's just projections by the analysts sure, at sure. these brokerage firms. So, you know, when I was in New York, I invested in real estate. So we had a 23-family building on Albemarle. Still have it? Well, sold it, but, you know, it was right on Ocean Avenue, right in the the middle of the hardcore Jewish area and right next door to Flatbush where I lived. And, you know, myself and my accountant and one of my boys, Ron Sweeney, who was another lawyer at the time, still is. I mean, he represents Cash Money and a bunch of others, uh, Little Wayne and folks, but we all bought this building, held it for a few years and sold it. Made some crazy money.
0: Have you ever ever dealt with uh, Baby? Uh, from Cash Money?
1: No, I Bright haven't Man? I haven't. Not directly. Yeah. yeah. Just just
0: watching that unfold, that whole I don't know if you're familiar with the situation between yeah. him and Wayne. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. It just Yeah. It, it, I mean we I don't I don't want to sit here and act like I don't know exactly
1: why that is going on. Mm-hmm. I mean, obviously he's saying pay me. Yeah. Um He wants more and he yeah. wants more value for what he's delivering. He's gonna hold up his goods until he gets it's just basic it's sad. contract
0: negotiations. It's, it's sad though. Yeah. It said it said it's sad because it, it, it probably takes you could tell it took little Wayne out of like man, I don't even want to create.
1: I know. It it killed his spirit. Yeah. Yeah.
0: You know, um man, we can't forget the client list of hip hop.
1: Mm-hmm. Um Gang Gang twins, man. Oh yeah. I mean Kane still walks in the office like two, three times a week He'll really? pick up his dough. Out here in Atlanta. Yeah, Give me yeah. Money. and Louise, you know, again my office manager. Kind of acts as uh, uh, what I call a surrogate manager for for he and his partner, uh, D Rock. Mm. Um, but they work like every week, man. Nice. They got a huge fan base. They're all over the world every single week, collecting dough and being on stage. That's why
0: I love talking with people like you because some people almost
1: forget. What these people are doing are like, oh, what?
0: like, and, and, and obviously I don't want to get through as I speak to this all the time. I mm-hmm. always say, like, it's amazing how in hip hop people try to be like, oh, he ain't relevant no more. What's mm-hmm. he doing? Meanwhile, Barry Manilow and, and Willie Nelson yeah.
1: are touring the world in, 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 until, you know, their yeah. 80s. and. Oh, yeah. I mean, when you have a fan base, classic example that we all know, because I, I, I'm there every year. Frankie Beverly, man. Mm-hmm. When was mm-hmm. the last time Frankie Beverly had a new record? You can't keep running in that's
0: right. out of my life. Frankie
1: Listen, has one of the most loyal fan bases around in the R&B and African-American and pop communities that he literally is still working, you know, every single week all around the country, mostly in the United States as opposed to overseas, but still some overseas trips. And, you know, you're talking about 50, 75, 100 grand a night. Look at Earth, Wind, and Fire. Wow. You know, Maurice is passed, you know, God rest his soul, but... Verdine, his brother Verdine White, and and Philip Bailey, and some of the other Larry Dunn from Earth, Wind, and Fire, and they toured with Chicago. You know, and they're they're still playing amphitheaters and five, six thousand seaters on a regular basis. Mm-hmm. Lionel Richie and Mariah Carey just came off the road. Mm-hmm. It was Lionel's show.
0: Yeah, that's right. That's try I seen him. They were in Philadelphia. You know, and uh, it was funny because she's like, I don't want to say she was opening up for him, right? But, but they kind of had
1: was it his, like that. she was his guest. Really, it was Lionel's tour, yeah, featuring Mariah Carey as he, his guest. You ever met Lionel.
2: Yeah he's, yeah, he's
1: he's uh, Lionel's a favorite of mine, man. So yeah. talented. Well, I knew, I knew Lionel back from the day because back in New York when I was like a little, you know, lawyer hood rat running around the street with my card, hanging out and pressing the flesh wherever I could, getting coffees, getting coffees. I befriended Betty Ashburn, who was really? his manager. He was the sixth member of the Commodores. Mm-hmm. He was actually the guy because he would do an even split with the rest of the group. That gave Lou Pearlman the idea that he was going to be like the sixth member of the Backstreet Boys and <laughs> split the check with them evenly. And that's you kind know, of led to some lawsuits and other stuff like that. But still, yeah, that's when you know, the first time I met Lionel on the Commodores when you know they, Benny was still alive and it was managing them.
0: Let's continue to go over your um, client list, particularly in hip-hop, uh, Goody Mob.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Goody Mob was my first big Atlanta-based client when I moved to Atlanta. Mm. Quick history on that was they were represented by a guy that nobody around Atlanta knows. His name is Cassim Reed, who is our mayor. Mm. Kaseem really? Yeah. Kaseem's a lawyer. He was with a large, uh, you know, general practice law firm, downtown Atlanta. He represented the goody mob. When I first came down here, he was also a state Senator, but he was extremely busy and getting busier. So we passed the goody mob torch over to me mm-hmm. and I picked up the clientele and kind of ran with it. Mm. Um, and, you know, the rest is history. I just worked with them through a lot of their success. And that was the heyday when LaFace Records and Usher and Tony Braxton and everybody were really blowing up. What's here your relationship ATO.
0: with uh, Usher?
1: I don't represent Usher. I know Usher because, you know, he's worked with a lot of my producer clients. Mm-hmm. Obviously, like Jermaine Depree. Yeah, like Jermaine Dupree and, and Brian Michael Cox and mm-hmm. others. And um, D Mile, who's done some tracks on him just recently for his most recent album. So, you know, Usher is just a generous guy. He is, you know, a gentle soul that's got humongous talent. I kind of say he kind of grew up and expanded his career and the profiles and the shadows of Michael Jackson, who's one of uh, his idols. And he took a lot of dance moves from. Mm. Uh, But this, you know, one of there's just a lot of great people around the Atlanta music scene that have been evolving here and maintaining and living here for like the last 20, 30 years. Whether it's you know Ludacris or Chris Brown or sure. Usher or Tony Braxton or scores of others, you know Goody Mob and Outkast and all of those folks, sure, that's what put Atlanta on the music map when I first moved down here in the mid nineties. Mm-hmm.
0: Heavy D and the Boys, how did that even happen? The
1: White, rest in peace, the mm-hmm. White. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I represented them like um, the Fat Boys and some others. Mm-hmm. When I was back in New York and I was during, you know, the heyday of the New York renaissance, what I call sure. the music renaissance in New York. And the de- 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 <laughs> heavy was just the guy. And he, he, Dwight was, you know, I call him like a gentle bear, mm-hmm. gentle giant bear, because obviously he was kind of large. Sure. Um, but his spirit was so gentle and he was just super talented and not egotistical, not, you know, industry driven crazy, but just a nice guy from Mount Vernon, New York. Yeah, yeah. yeah. With a good cousin named Pete Rock. That's know? right. Yeah. You know, um, Pete Rock's a friend of mine, man. Yeah. And uh, yep.
0: I think it may have been the first time I ever had a Pete on the show. So it was like Pete and Pete. You know? Uh-huh. Yeah. Double P, but rest in peace to- uh, Yeah. To, um, Definitely. And, and quite a do. few others, yeah. unfortunately. Yeah. Even working with uh, uh, our very own, who's in the building, Nat Robinson. Yeah. First part of music, so Milk D, MC Light. Yeah,
1: yeah. I mean, that whole dynasty. Mm -hmm. So, you know, they kind of. Underrated. Yeah, Audio 2. You know, they hit it at a time when, what I call it. I hate to say music was music because music is still music. Sure. But they came up at a time when, you know, Audio 2 and Top Billing and Light and Nat. And then later on with Amen. It was just like what I call a well-oiled machine True. that knew how to take talent and capitalize on it. Mm. I mean, Light's a perfect example, you know. Um, even even with with D, it was MC Milk D at that yeah, time. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, who's still great on the writing and producing side, but Light, like Latifah and a bunch of others, have evolved beyond just music. True. So you know now they're doing television, sure, and they're just doing voice movies, alone, yeah. and you know they're doing radio and all kinds of stuff like that. So. Again, you've got to be able to take a brand that has a fan base attached to it and just monetize it and monopolize it in as many different ways as you can while you got that moment in space.
0: Mm. Where do you see the music landscape in five to ten years, in wow. your opinion?
1: Well, music is not going away. You know, people say, is the music business dying? Hell no, the music business is not dying. The music business, like most other businesses, is changing shape and form like an amoeba. So it kind of transforms based on technology and consumer consumption patterns. Technology has evolved from wax to CDs, CDs to digital, digital to streaming, and who knows what the hell's going to be next, mm. but it's an evolution of technology. Music consumption has just continued to expand only because, you know, we're sitting here talking about music that was great from people that created it in the 70s. Well, our kids who we're having now don't know nothing about that music that was created back in the 70s, but we're listening to it, and they're listening to the music that's current now, some of which has been influenced by the music from the 70s, 80s, and 90s. And that's because I call music kind of like the additional lifeblood that we, that, that we you know, can't see and feel. All you can do is hear it and sense it. But it's everywhere you go. You know, Can you think of the last time you saw a TV show or checked out a movie that didn't have music in it or went to a mall sure. or went to a sports game in an arena or drove around the city, let alone go to a club, that didn't have music playing, that went to a gym and worked out and you didn't hear music in the sound Mm. system or go to a bar or a restaurant, didn't have music, sit on an elevator and hear music. Music's everywhere. So, I mean, that's the beauty. That's why I love being in the music business because it touches everybody's lives and it's not broken up by race or age or gender or religion or ethnicity because, you know, I remember being in Tokyo years ago with Shaba. Mm-hmm. And we were doing an outdoor show in Japan. Shouts to the clock. Yep. There's Banneker giving his cloud saying, hey, you know, here's another quarter hour. Uh, (laughs) But it's all good because we're just sitting kicking it. So we were in Japan. It's a Shabarang show. And naturally, keep in mind that at that time, which was back in the 90s, probably about 15% of my clients were from Jamaica. Mm. I was representing everybody who was coming out of Jamaica or it was Third World or Barrington Levy or Shabba Ranks or you know uh, you know, uh, Beanie Man. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I, I also work with Peter Tosh and Bunny mm-hmm. Whaler from wow. Bob Marley and the Whalers. Um, but just a score of Jamaica. So Jamaica was like my second home. So we were over specialists and Shabba and I were in Tokyo. He was doing a show. Now in Japan... Yeah, I mean, it's a it's a very progressive country, but every Japanese person doesn't speak English. Mm. The majority don't. They speak Japanese. So we were at the show, and maybe one person out of 100 spoke English in the audience. But when he came on stage and started singing his song, they knew every single word, which is in English, and patois. Half of the patois, I can't even understand, but they were singing the patois, and they were singing the English. And then, you know and they weren't just mouthing it they were singing it so it just tells you how you know the the the, the essence of music is embraced internationally and that's what makes it so powerful that's special yeah i mean
0: even just to just just to go and experience that you know um is there ever a deal that you did where it wasn't a good deal where it's like you had to deal with the headache of it or people complaining or or so, something that got you
1: out of your character too like where you're like listen
2: Leave me yeah, the hell alone. Yeah.
1: You know, I mean, again, at the end of the day, as a lawyer, we have to represent the best interests of our clients. Mm-hmm. And you got to understand that every deal is not necessarily a good deal, but sometimes it's the client that's saying, I don't really care. Just make it the best deal that you can for me and I'll deal with it. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, but be aware. And I'm warning you up front that you're not getting this, you're not getting that. And, you know, sometimes the killer is in the fine print, not in the fact that you're going to sign, they're going to give you a check for half a million dollars. Because that may be the only money you might see for years. And in some cases, it's true if you know, you're know you doing an album every year or two and you're never seeing any royalties because you're never in a recoup position. So you're only making money when you sign the deal and when you deliver the album and then you wait until the next album is picked up so you get more money to go deeper in debt. Mm. So then you have to go out on the road and work. You got to write some of the songs so you can get some of the publishing so that you can eat and maintain a lifestyle and a career. But I've done a lot of deals where I'm like, I hate this deal. This shit sucks. But they still (laughs) like, yeah, let's do it anyway. It's good money. I'm like, yeah, but all right, well, you get yours. I'll get mine. We'll just do the best and just hope for the best because, you know, when you sign a deal, you're not always in control of what happens after you deliver your product. And in most cases, unless you really have leverage, you're not in control of what happens after you deliver your product because, you know, they'll market it, they'll promote it, They'll pick the singles. They'll choose the video team. And th- unless you have enough leverage, you know, you're not going to be involved in those critical decisions, which will make or break a career.
0: Is there a happy medium, like, meaning, like, you're trying to get the best for your client? They're trying to get the best. So they're going to send s- – say they send over a contract and, you're like, yo, this contract's bullshit. Yeah. You send back a bunch of adjusted things mm-hmm. and, like, and you try to get it into your favor. Right. Then they got to turn around and say, hey, we want to get into our favor. It, it, what is is there well, a happy every medium? Deal.
1: That's every deal. And the happy medium is – You know, we're not going to kill each other. We're going to live with this. We've gotten the best that we can do on both sides. And let's shake and sign and go to work. Sure. But that's like every deal.
0: Any lawyers that want to be lawyers, you know, like yourself, I mean, like up and coming lawyers, people who are ready lawyers that are listening to this or even people who want to go to law school or want to become a lawyer because of of some of the things there that they heard from you today. What's some advice that you have for them?
1: Um, If they haven't gone to law school yet and they're looking at law schools to go to, my recommendation for those college students looking to go to law school is just do some research to figure out which law schools have at least a few courses that you can take while you're in law school that'll position you to be a little bit ahead of the curve when you get out of law school if you're going into the entertainment field. And that would include contracts, intellectual property, copyrights, and trademarks, Hopefully an entertainment law course, but a lot of law schools don't have that. So only a small handful do. Um, And then once you get in law school, depending on where you are, if you're in a city that has a music base, then intern, get to work for a law firm. I have law students on a regular basis, and I have for many, many years, decades, actually, where I'll take in a law student. I have one now from John Marshall here in Atlanta that comes in two days a week. And I'll give her a pile of work and she'll knock it out because she's getting practical hands-on experience that you can't get in law school. Sure. So that's the, the, the pre-law school and the while you're in law school grinding. And then once you get out, the most important thing is pass the damn bar. Yeah. Cause if you can't pass the bar, you can't get licensed and you can't practice. So sure. focus at least for that first six months when you get out on studying and passing the bar, getting the bar behind you and then making your network contacts So you can get your feet wet and get accepted at sure. some area. And it's going to probably be private practice or a corporation that you wind up working for.
0: What about negotiation? you think about it, like how do people learn how to negotiate? Like for, to be a, a good entertainment lawyer, you have to have good negotiating skills. How, how what do you suggest to somebody who's just on, getting in the business on
1: the job training? Yeah. It's really 90% of that is on the job training supplemented by specific tactics, um, through seminars and workshops and conferences. You know, um, what's next for you? Um,
0: Besides 35 years deep in the entertainment lawyer business.
1: Yeah, well, two years ago, we uh, or I launched an online music portal called AskEntertainmentLawyer.com. Okay. And my goal and desire for that was to educate and empower because knowledge is power. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's not something that we set up that you know we did for the purpose of just you know cashing out, making a bunch of money in in a quick fashion. Even though that would be nice down the road, but the idea is to share information. That's what we do on the website. Mm. My book is available on the website. Um, we have uh, contracts, just like um, you know, you go to Legal Zoom. We're like Legal Zoom for music industry contracts on our website.
0: You also, uh, you're also a professor.
1: In- yeah, yeah, I've taught uh, and still do teach. Uh, Copyright and music publishing in the music department at georgia state nice. university and nice. i taught entertainment law a number of years ago in new york when i was in new york at benjamin Cardozo law school
0: nice yeah well listen um we took i don't want to take any more of your time um first of all i that want to thank you it was an uh, honor to sit down with you um you know a lot of information you know really and and you know it's in special internet first of all we're on the road we're in Atlanta. Yeah. We're in Kendall Minter's office where he closed. Hanging out. Million dollar deals in here. <laughs> I smell. As soon as I walked in, I smelled money. I mean, listen, for those of you who've been listening, there's been a clock going on in the back. That thing's 10 grand. Okay. Yeah. You understand? Maybe more than that. Is that clock working? Yeah, yeah. Really? Yeah. Okay. I was playing around, but and um, are you on social media? Uh,
1: Yes or no. I mean, my real social media, because I'm on Facebook. Okay. I use Facebook more for socializing than for business purposes. On the business side, I'm on LinkedIn. But my biggest social media thing basically is my email address. I'm accessible. Our website is really my social media contact. Um, and we spend a lot of time putting content up there and keeping it current and making sure that folks are informed and empowered.
0: Well, listen, Internet, check out Kendall Minter's Facebook. Check him out. Like I said, uh, I thank you again. Um, the journey is inspiring. Man. Thank you. Just declining tell is inspiring. And just your contributions are inspiring. Internet's Kendall Minter. See you next episode. Cheer. Thank, thank you. Internets, if you loved what you just heard, do me a favor, please. Go over to iTunes, subscribe, rate. If you, if you mess with SoundCloud, follow us or Spotify, whatever it is, make sure you subscribe, rate, and leave a comment. It helps us. It helps us look, helps us look, look, look clean in these streets, man. I need your help. Okay, You got all these gems, you're getting all this uh, uh, inspiration You know I pour my heart out on these fucking episodes And I try to bring to you people from all walks of life Whether that be entrepreneurs, athletes, artists And really go over the journey No fuck shit, no drama, just real life shit So if you fuck with the Premium P Show Please head on over to iTunes, subscribe Press that subscribe button, rate, and leave a comment I don't care if you say like, yo Pete, I love the show Or if you say, Pete, go fuck yourself, it's all right. Sometimes it has to be like that Make sure you go to iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, TuneIn, wherever you get your podcast and listen to your podcast. Subscribe, rate, and leave a comment, okay? I appreciate y'all, and we'll see you next episode. Cheer.